When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdeljabar. What's up, brother? How are you? Chilling, man, as per usual. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty well. I actually just watched the Britney Spears documentary on Hulu. Oh, did you? (laughs) What'd you think? I forgot how terrible the media was to her back in the day. Yeah, man. Donald Trump beat your heart out. Like she they really like gave her shit. I really forgot how bad it was like Mm -hmm. watching those obnoxious paparazzis follow her and then have that lead to an eventual mental breakdown where she shaves her head because back in the day when that was all going down, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was like 15 or so. I I was younger. I was like, Oh, look at her. She's crazy. She's crazy, man. She shaved her head. Right. I thought the same thing. Yeah. Totally Mm -hmm. without the context of, Oh yeah, she's uh being constantly harassed 24-7. Right. And her and her whole life is just public, and she's being criticized at every turn. Did you ever see the, the South Park that makes fun of that, that makes fun of the entire situation? Uh, yeah, I, di- I did. I don't remember the whole plot, but that was a long time ago too, though. It's very good. It's very sympathetic to I'm gonna have to watch I'm gonna have to watch it again though kind of crude obviously South Park it's South Park it is (laughs) it is it is very uh nuanced the way it projects that but yeah I thought it was I thought it was pretty good I I really did forget how uh awful the corporate media is well I don't forget how awful the corporate media is (laughs) they are awful all the time but it was just really just seeing that side of it Mm-hmm. I forgot how vicious they were in entertainment news right. because now people are kind of protected about what information or at least celebrities are protected when it comes to like putting out um, the the PR that they want through their own social media right, channels. They have social media, right? They can they can put out all the pictures that they want. Exactly. When it was left up to the paparazzi news or really whatever news like when Britney Spears shaved their head, everyone covered that. Like right. it was like a headline story on right. the New York Times, most likely. Yeah. And um, I just forgot how how awful that. And I would freak the. There's one scene where she starts bashing a car with, with like umbrella, the crutches, yeah, with an, with crutches or whatever, some uh-huh. blunt object, yeah. And I'm like, I don't blame her. I would do the yeah. same shit. <laughs> Neither do I. Yeah. Now, like, do, you think, I think, do you think that she deserves to be in a conservatorship after, you know, learning what you learned? Well, I don't know what I'm I'm confused because the documentary really wasn't clear about why she was put in the conservatorship. Well, that's that's on purpose because they they haven't released the information from the very um, it, it's a little weird. The circumstances under which she was evaluated on whether or not she should be 
you know, in a conservatorship. Uh, and those documents have not been made public. And so nobody really knows. And, you know, the conspiracy part of this is that, you know, they're, they're all, they're all paid off or, you know, uh, it's like a hung jury, so to speak. And that, you know, this is, this is like a, you, you know, remember that crackpot doctor that, uh, Donald Trump had the first time around that said he was like the healthiest president in like the whole like universe or whatever. Uh, yeah. like, like one is probably one of those types that, uh, uh, deemed Brittany as having dementia, which she clearly doesn't have dementia. And even if she did, like, there are plenty of people with dementia that don't have all of their, like, civil liberties taken away either. So all of their, all of their freedom in general taken away. <laughs> so it's a little fucked up. It is, it is very bizarre. It does seem like a scheme when watching that. Mm-hmm. Like, they, uh, they totally conspire to, to take advantage of her mental breakdown and play it up so they could control her finances. It really does seem that way, but who knows? I don't, I don't know the truth behind it. I know people, I have a friend who's like, dude, she's crazy. Look at her Instagram pictures. She's nuts. And I'm like, she does look a little bit troubled, but you know, after what she's been through. Can you blame her? Can't really blame her too much. But, um, speaking of, uh, kind of, uh, crazy peoples, crazy peoples. So this is going to be our third episode in a row on China. And we never really intended to uh, do three episodes in a row on China. Nope. It just kind of turned out that way because um, each subject kind of flowed into the other. Mm-hmm. And um, Danny, I don't know about you, but I've been enjoying this because I've been trying to better understand the CCP and, and current relations relationships between the u.s and china yeah so these episodes have been really helpful as far as giving giving myself just a foundation to um understand at, at the very least the geopolitical relationships between the united states and china and yep. and um you know all all that good stuff 100 percent, and i'm really mm-hmm. in all the and all the research that you have done has been has been outstanding now we wanted to last week we did an episode on um kind of the ethnic i don't want to say ethnic makeup all right you can better describe this because you well, more 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 like this. the the how you know the the we can even use the word invention the invention of the quote chinese people or the han people and like how it was a general overview of of you know the ancient history of china leading up till uh today and, you know, kind of showing how China isn't one distinct, you know, ethnicity or culture. It's multiple ethnicities and cultures that kind of got together and created this thing. Uh, and I think um, what we're about to discuss today really is the foundation of how that unification of China happened. Quite literally, the word China comes from the empire uh, that unified you know this the the warring states the Qin Empire. Let's start it off by talking about I guess the uh, the Godfather of the Qin Dynasty, the guy who kind of formed it. Yep, yep. So this guy actually has a ton of names. Uh, we're gonna go with uh, Qin Shi Huang. Uh, oh, by the way, heads up. Apologies if I butcher people's names here. I'm, I don't study Chinese I, I, or Mandarin or anything like that. I I might fuck this up. Uh, so <laughs> I think I got this one right though. Qin Shi Huang. Uh, or just Emperor Qin, we're going to go by. But other names that he's gone by, Qin Shi Huang, Qin Shi Huang Di, Shi Huang Ti, Shi Huang Ti, uh, 
Um, Shi Huangdi, by the way, means first emperor, and that's that's a title, not a proper name. He actually has a name, um, and uh, his actual name, like his birth given name, was Ying Zheng or, or Zhao Zheng, um, and you know he he was born uh, to the king uh, Zhuang Chang of Qin, which was a state before he was born. Uh, and uh, his concubine, um, who was a dancer named uh, Zhao uh, Zhao Ji. Okay, those were some pretty tough names. So he's born Ying Zheng. Uh, he was born in the state of Qin. He was the prince to the king of Qin, and you know his mom Zhao Ji. So the juicy bit here, though, is that uh, Qin probably wasn't the actual son of the king, uh, but rather he was the son of this dude named Lu Bu Wei, uh, who is a wealthy merchant who happened to be, you know, getting down and dirty with Chin's mom at the time. Uh, take this with a grain of salt because this was actually written by a guy named Sima Qian, uh, who was a great Chinese historian from the early Han dynasty. And at this point, it might be worth reminding everyone that ancient stories require ancient sources. And the ancient sources that we have about the Qin Dynasty, they're questionable at worst and selective at best. Um, the particular test, uh, text in question is called Records of the Grand Historian. Yep. And it wasn't finished until at least 100 years after uh, Emperor Qin died. It was also written by a historian who was writing from the framework of the following empire. So needless to say, there's a, a bit of a bent in this narrative. Yeah, a little bit. But he does... But that is juicy. That is a good story. It's, it's if I was going to write some stuff yeah. up or for some moral reason. So he is the... So um, he is the son of a... of a dancer and... And a merchant, apparently. And a merchant. But played off like the son of a king who becomes huh. the king. That's interesting. It's kind of a cool story, you know? Um no, nobody really knows if it's true or not, right? <laughs> like this could just, I mean, you'll, you'll find out later, but like Chin was both really great and also kind of a dick, right? And, you know, the Han uh, Empire, the Han Dynasty that, that preceded um, uh, the Chin Dynasty, uh, basically they try to undo all of what, you know, uh, well, maybe not undo, but undo all the bad stuff of the, the Chin Dynasty. And they, they didn't look at him. History didn't treat him very well. Let's just put it that way, uh, during the Han Dynasty, at least. Um, but uh, but back to Qin, though. Uh, he he um, he actually spent the first six years of his life in the kingdom of Dao. Uh, that's where his mom came from. But what's important to note about this is uh, the abandonment by his father. Um, and then six years later, uh, the king of Qin, his dad, died. Um, and Ying Zheng, which is what his name was at the time, uh, became the king at just 12 years old. Now, this dude, uh, the, the merchant guy, Lu Bu Wei, uh, he was actually pretty cunning in his own respect, and he managed to secure himself a position um, as the prime minister uh, to take care of the kingdom's affairs until uh, you know, Emperor Qin, then Ying Zheng, came of age. And uh, Lu Bu Wei was a pretty interesting dude also. He, he could probably warrant his own episode, um, but... Uh, how he came to to get to this power, how he came this close to to the throne is is also another juicy story. But what you want to know from this one is that he was a pretty smart guy. Uh, he knew how to make good investments. 
Obviously, he was a merchant, um, but especially in people. And this kind of carried him through, uh, carried through to his short time as prime minister. And also, he was still banging the emperor's mom. So, <laughs> so there's that, apparently. Uh, so this dude Lubue, he he put into practice a, a pretty, a pretty clever and different system, uh, and it was like a system of meritocracy where he would basically hire all the brightest people, sometimes even ones that came from like rival states in the region. Uh, and this practice was continued by Chin um, when he came of age, and it was definitely a, a major part of uh, why you know the Chin uh, dynasty was so successful. Um, Lubue, though his his Achilles heel was his affair or alleged affair uh, with Chin's mom and, uh, you know, potentially his parentage of Chin. So, you know, to, to kind of take some of that pressure off of him uh, with keeping up with all those secrets, um, he basically introduced Chin's mom to this dude, Lao Ai, who, again, another juicy story. He pretended to be a eunuch and joined the court as like Chin's mom's man friend. But really he was like, her friend with benefits. Um, remember this dude. But he 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 pretended to be a eunuch all while sleeping with Chin's mom. Chin's, dance, Chin's dancer mom. That's right. Um, but basically, like, Lu Buwei was like, all right, I can't keep fucking you, lady. Here's some other dude that you can have sex with instead <laughs> uh, to keep you busy. And, uh, yeah, that, that was that was a mistake. You'll, you'll find okay, out. Okay, so Lu Buwei, he orchestrated this. Yeah, yeah he, he put keep, it all together. Yeah, To keep, to be like, I don't have time for this anymore. I'm going to bring in my friend, and we all think that he's a eunuch. So it won't actually be public, so it won't embarrass me. So I'm not, I'm not certain. Do. I'm not certain if he knew that, um, that Lao Ai was a eunuch or not. I don't know if he knew that or not. What I do know is that uh, he did this on purpose to take the pressure off because, like, a lot of people were suspecting that he was sleeping with with the Dowager Queen, you know, Chin's mom. And so, if she's fucking around with some other dude, Lao Ai, then there's no, you know, there's like less conflict of interest, so to speak. Like nobody's looking at Lu Bu you know. So it was, it was more. I, got, I gotcha. You, you know what I mean? It was like to try, take the the like the pressure off of him. They're like, what are you talking about? She's fucking that like eunuch dude. That doesn't make too much sense if that was the cover-up story. Yeah, it's 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 a complicated story, man. I'm telling you, it's it's a lot of this shit is super salacious, and I didn't follow all of it super well. So if I'm butchering this, my bad. But that's the general take that I got from it. All right, there's um, some there's some affairs and some um, sneaky sex stuff going on yep. with some illegitimate kids coming around and right, right. whatnot. And De- that, definitely, that sort that's, of stuff that, going that'll on. that'll pop up in. All but right. in 238, though, Chin. Um, you know, reaches adulthood and starts to consolidate his power. But that part wasn't particularly easy. And I'm going to skip over a lot of like important things, but some of the, um, some of the highlights or lowlights, I should say, uh, he had to deal with a famine. Um, he lost a super close general. Um, and he also, his, his own brother rebelled against him. Um, so there's like a lot of shit going on for him to try and consolidate his power, but he, he ended up pushing through it. Later on, though, if you remember that unit guy, Lao Ai, he actually decided to have a go at a coup uh, because go figure he ends up having some kids with Chin's mom and wanted to take the power so that he can he can put his own kids in. So, yeah, he wasn't a eunuch. <laughs> he was he was still very much intact, um, but that didn't really go anywhere. Uh, he lost 
uh, and Chin actually had him torn in half. He put him between two car, uh, two carts of horses and like, you know, split him in half, like medieval style. Uh, very, very Game of Thrones. And he, he uses this as like a warning against future coups. And this is kind of like sets the, the, the tone for how he governs a little bit. Um, but this whole period uh, led to uh, Lu Bu Wei, the merchant guy, losing his job, but not his life. He, he could, he was about to, Chin was about to murder him. Um, but some of the people that, some of the smart people that Lu Bu Wei put in power uh, basically argued, you know, with, with the emperor and, and, and convinced him not to kill him. But he ended up getting uh, exiled and banished. Uh, and he kept getting banished farther and farther away until eventually he killed himself. And uh, fun fact, Chin's mom died that same year from unknown reasons. Maybe she was sad. I don't know. But I think, well, this is kind of like a big turning point for Chin at this point. This is like his early history. He's just consolidated a lot of power. You know, he, he just, one thing that I didn't mention is that the Chin Empire was the, the largest of the seven warring states uh, at the time. So he inherited this giant state. Uh, he hardened himself against a bunch of coup attempts uh, and consolidated all the power around him. And Lu Buwei set him up with like a government full of really talented people, you know, uh, to help him run the government and and run the war machine. And I think he basically used all of this uh, and, and a bunch more uh, to fuel his conquest and 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 you know the over the the other six warring states in China. So it's kind of like Philip II and Alexander III. Exactly. Where, well, Philip II, he's setting up his son, Alexander the Great, to really have the best army and Mm -hmm. a real nation state in Europe. Philip II, he was planning the invasion of Asia to Mm -hmm. conquer the Persian Empire. And when he died, when he was assassinated, Alexander the Great was just like, all right, I'm going to run with this plan. I have a great set of generals in place, a West Point equivalent there. Yep. They had the best so, generals. So did they, they had the same thing in Ch- the, the Qin Empire as well. Yep. The, the only difference there is that Lu Bu Wei wasn't actively trying to conquer the warring, the other warring states. He was just trying to build up a, a massive like government and a massive war machine within Qin. Uh, Emperor Qin himself was the one who took the initiative and said, all right, well, fuck it. I'm going to go. You know, I'm gonna go crush well, well, these other people. Let's pull this back because yeah. um, let's let's talk about what like because we're talking about the Warring States yep. period. But yeah, that's right. Some mm-hmm. people may not know what the hell we're talking about. Mm-hmm. The Warring States period in China was between 481 and 221 BCE, so it lasts a really long time. Um, and it was started when the prior dynasty, the the Zhao dynasty, lost their ability to administrate um, the the unique regions that they that they conquered. Um, and so the co- the country, the Zhao dynasty, uh, broke up into seven separate states. Uh, Chu, Han, Qi, Qin, Wei, Yan, and Zhao. Uh, and basically they, they, they continuously fought each other, you know, for supremacy for a few hundred years. Um, and each of those states were, were basically fighting each other to legitimize themselves under the, quote, mandate of heaven, which was basically a loose set of principles under which the Chinese dynasties legitimized their rule. It was, I think, kind of less of a religious mandate as it was a military one in practice, though. So the the mandate of heaven, in a nutshell, was that this ancient god or like divine force known as like heaven, 
or the sky, it depends on the text that you read, um, had selected a particular individual to rule on behalf on its behalf on earth, right? So, I mean, you probably he- heard of this this premise, you know, across thousands of cultures. Um, but basically, when when while this ruler has is is granted a whole lot of power, uh, he also has this like moral obligation to use it for the good of his people. And it's it was said that if you you know uh, if you didn't, then uh, you would suffer terrible disasters to the state uh, that you and you would lose the right to govern. Um, but I think obviously that that's like the the poetic um, part of the mandate of heaven. But if if you look at it practically speaking or like pragmatically, the reverse was true. You know, if if you suffered a natural disaster and you couldn't pull out of it, if you couldn't effectively govern your people, or if you suffered some major like military setback, it was said that you lost the mandate of heaven, not the other way around, right? So, and that's what basically happened to the Zhao, right? Like they they couldn't keep it together. And so they lost it. This is kind of a lot like the ancient Egyptian pharaohs, uh, if you remember from, from when we were talking about them um, and how they legitimized their their power by the consistency of the flooding of the Nile. And basically it was like if, if it didn't flood consistently, you lost your legitimacy, right? Um, and I think it's kind of important to note that, that all of these ancient Chinese sovereign rulers, pretty much right up until Qin, um, sought to use like military power to gain or maintain that quote mandate of heaven because this was the easiest way to do it right like you can't really control whether or not you know a river floods you can't really control you know whether or not your enemies you know fucking the han the 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 huns from the north come and invade your shit you know like you can't really control a lot of those things what you can control is your own military so they they often use that as a way to um to gain or, or maintain that mandate, but there was still this moral underpinning that went along with with it that was very, very Confucian and not at all Chin style. Chin basically dropped the heaven part and went full mandate uh, with like military power. But this didn't actually happen until like a little bit later on. Um, and I think although the state of Chin had a pretty good army, uh, they had iron weapons, they had war chariots, they had crossbows, all kinds of really awesome stuff. Um, they weren't initially able to make a dent in conquering other states, probably because of the way that war was fought at the time. And I'll, I'll explain more about that in a bit. But along comes this dude uh, who's a politician. His name was Shang Yang. Again, one of these super smart people that Lu Bu Wei um, had hired into the government. And he basically developed the philosophy of legalism. We'll talk more about legalism in a bit too. Um, but he advocated total war. Uh What's interesting about warfare um, in the Warring States period was that it was it was kind of like gentlemen's warfare. It was like there was a lot of rules. Uh, so before Shang's reforms, warfare was like like a like a nobleman's game. Uh, it was like it was like chess or go, you know. Um, and it had these rules. So uh, some of the rules, as an example, was it was common practice to allow your enemy to mobilize on the battlefield. Um, just let them get into position. Uh, even to pass you so that they can get into position without like without you fucking with them. That without was, that was normal. molestation. Yeah, without molestation. So that was normal, right? And and also commanding generals didn't attack non-combatants, so there was no like, or at least not on purpose, right? There's there's very few you know collateral damage. 
and they were expected to treat people who they uh, defeated with honor. So like if you captured POWs, you know, you brought them, you tra treated them with honor, you know, especially the, the high ranking ones. And yeah, pretty much all of that went out the window after some time and Chin started winning. So they weren't doing what the ancient Greeks did and just massacre and, and brutalize entire populations, uh, executing all the men and then selling all the women and children into slavery. That wasn't a common practice. No, but Chin made it a common practice <laughs> okay. effectively, right? It, it wasn't until he adopted these these uh, legalist strategies of like total warfare that, that he actually started winning. Um, and he took each state one by one. The first state he conquered was the Han. Uh, then he went and got Zhao and Wei. Uh, and then he took on a, a, one of the more powerful ones, the Chu, and he beat them. Uh, and once uh, the Chu were gone... It was just like Yan and, and Chi uh, left over, and they were kind of the weak ones. <laughs> Funny story about Chi. Chi literally put up all of their guys on the Western Front, um, like expecting a head-on assault, and Chin's forces flanked him from the north and basically took the capital with no problem. So that was like easiest victory for him. Um, but after this, this is when Chin declared himself the emperor, and uh, he changed his name uh, to uh, Chin Shi Huang, uh, which obviously I pointed out before means means... First Emperor of Qin. So what's interesting is that he um, adopts this legalist philosophy, right. which is um, an ancient Chinese philosophy along with some other philosophies, but this is very Machiavellian. Yeah, so you could say that. When he does become emperor, he has to organize his new empire, right? Because... If you want things to run smoothly for thousands of years, you have to establish reforms. And he, Emperor Chen, he's kind of the perfect Machiavellian prince, the way that he, the way that he kind of uh, consolidates his power. And it makes total sense when you think about the, the context here. Even though they existed 1,500 years apart, and were from completely different parts of the world, the political circumstances they lived through were very similar in some key aspects. During the Warring States period in China, um, you have six Warring States. In the 1500s in Italy, Italy was divided by feuding feudal states. This leads them to believe in a strong central government and by any means necessary. Morality is not part of the equation in, uh, in legalist and in Machiavellian thought. Um, power is acquired for its own sake. And, and that's the only way in their mind, in these philosophies, to achieve a prosperous state mm -hmm. is to eliminate division and have consolidated central power. According to Machiavelli, only suckers rule with virtue and, and integrity. The successful leaders are the ones that exploit others. And if you if you read the Prince, you know he writes about the necessity of of a of a dual nature that is a half beast and half man. And a leader must be seen as merciful, but not actually be merciful. He he abolishes the principle of practice what you preach and instead advocates um he advocates that you 
tell other people's to be virtuous. Meanwhile, you act like an a-hole behind closed doors to, you know, consolidate your power. Mm. And if you think about it in the context of Machiavelli power politics, Emperor Chin recognized the importance of a domestic power base. So he abolishes a feudal system and he develops a system of bureaucracy to control territory. Yep, yep. And this is where we see a lot of like the, the quote unification of China that we talked about in the last episode. You know, Emperor Chin didn't want the states that he conquered to think of themselves as independent nations. So he divided the country up into smaller administrative units. Uh, there were 36 uh, commanderies, which is what he called them. Um, and then he divided those into even smaller districts and counties and things like that. And he also declared that um, government positions would be appointed according to people's abilities and not according to like a hegemony or even the fact that you live in the area. And he, something that's important is he rotated civilian leaders across former kingdoms so um, they wouldn't get too popular, so mm -hmm. he wouldn't get too attached to them. Right. And all these conquered lands would become provinces and counties rather than setting up anyone with any kind of remote claim of royalty. Uh, Machiavelli said that a prince has a stronger hold on the state if he uses ministers because there's no kind of blood lineage to the central power authority. Mm -hmm. um, Chin also required um, the remaining leaders, and you see this practice in, in a lot of societies in ancient Japan, not ancient Japan, but uh, shogunate Japan, mm -hmm. where Chin required the remaining leaders and informally wealthy families of, of captured territories to live in his own capital. And you, you better be damn sure that they're not living in the same size of state that they were living in prior. Mm -hmm. So they're living in some dump, or maybe not a dump, but they're living in a, a more modest living circumstance than they were living before um, the show Who's Boss and Keep Your Enemies Close and Your Friends Closer. Right. Mario... Um, Mario Puzo. Mario Puzo. He definitely, um, you know, was inspired by by Machiavelli when he when he added that line. I'm actually not sure if that line's in the book or not. I'm, I mean, it's definitely in the movie. I'm not 100 percent sure if it's in the book or not. I, I never I read the back. books, so I'm not sure. I've never read the books either, but it's obviously the Godfather is obviously based on on the book. Right. Well, you know, uh, one way that, okay. that he would kind of push this a little bit, um, you know, kind of, he, he would uh, change the way that land was passed down, you know. So, like, first, he, he would take all the wealthy people and all the former, you know, uh, um, leaders, and he would put them in his own city. And then for the rest of the, you know, people that got to stay in their own estates, he changed the way how, you know, how land was passed down. So, previously, uh, land was typically passed down to the firstborn son. This is this is called primogeniture, um, is land inheritance basically. But he changed it to be that you divide your uh, inheritance equally among all of your sons. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia. Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. 
But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And that's super important because it eroded the power of these large landholders by preventing one person from gaining control over like these large estates. And it also just, generally speaking, it eroded the aristocracy to the point where he was able to create basically an absolute autocracy where Qing controlled everything, all of the power and pretty much every aspect of, of life in his empire. That's interesting. I think it's important to, to be familiar with the three schools of political thought in ancient China. Mm-hmm. So the Taoist, the Confucians, and the Legalist. Um, what's interesting about the Taoist is that according to Murray Rothbard, he was, they were the first libertarians. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. So according to Murray Rothbard's definition, which is pretty strong endorsement. Were they all like freedom lovers? Like, you know, no, no central government? <laughs> creator of the movement. Um, he, basically, the Taoists were, they did not believe in, in a central government. Mm. They believed in laissez-faire economics. And if you read some of the Taoist uh, writings, it's all, um, it looks like it could have been written by Ron Paul. <laughs> Ron Paul the Taoist. Yeah. Um <laughs> very anti-war, um anti um taxes, um anti-regulations. They wrote about how regulations would only favor the rich and the people creating the regulations. I I, I don't know enough to connect Taoist influence with the founding of like the the United States. Mm. Thomas Jefferson was heavily influenced by the French, and I'm sure the French had access to a lot of this information. Uh, these were inspired by Taoist. Uh, I mean, Jefferson writing. was was a was a. Um, I was going to say medicine man. <laughs> I don't know why I was thinking that. He was he was a, a Renaissance man. You know, he he was very interested in cultures and 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 things from all over the world. Didn't he? Like he had like a Quran. He had like you know a lot of a lot of different texts from a lot of different regions. 
he was super interested in a lot of different things. So I, yeah, I could totally imagine that he probably brushed up on a little bit of Taoism himself. I mean, he had the largest library in the Western Hemisphere. Yeah. Um, uh, think of them as ancient libertarians. The Confucians were kind of like middle of the rotors on state versus individual power. So the philosophy was based on the view that humans are essentially good, but they engage in immoral behavior if they don't have a strong moral standard. And the ethical code enforced by like common rituals in society mm. would incentivize good behavior across the public. But it was like underneath the assumption that kind of like John Locke's like blank slate, like people were basically good. Mm. And then um, you can see kind of like the Thomas Hobbes and the legalist. But the legalist school of thought is much more it was more interested in advising rulers how to increase their power mm. than really being like a political philosophy. It was more of like a consulting business, at least the way that I read it. You know, I may be totally wrong about this, but the way I've read it about legalism, it seems more of like a protocol for an emperor rather than some type of philosophy. Um, legalism opposed Confucian ideas and Taoist ideas. Um, they opposed the moral assumptions from from Confucius ideas, and the Qin Dynasty tried to actively erase Confucianism. From their history, because Confucianism had a strong influence, and 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 it wasn't just like the uh, uh, the political philosophies that were that were kind of upheaved. You know, there there was a lot of things that that changed, including like especially the economy. Um, and I think this is you know a, a real big reason why they were uh, the Qin Dynasty, or at least the unification of the Qin Dynasty, was so successful. Because you know, for one. Uh, Emperor Qin standardized the use of coins throughout the empire, which wasn't, you know, wasn't a practice before. Um, you know, the the establishment of fiat currency wouldn't necessarily be. Um, uh, uh, I don't know. W would that be libertarian in general? <laughs> the establishment of a of a centralized fiat currency, probably not, right? No, it's not. <laughs> it's not at all. Right. So he's not exactly a libertarian, Mister Chin here. Um, but he did do this, and it did That's help. The opposite of libertarian economics. <laughs> yeah. What Mises said, his one of his most important theories in economics was that a currency had to be a commodity first. Mm. Like you had to have a. Uh, currency that people wanted for other things, so that's why precious metals were perfect because well, uh, you could use pressure, you can melt precious metals down and you could use it for, um, you know, building something right. or like silverware, jewelry, or there's a lot of uses for gold. Okay, silver. so well, in in fairness, it, these coins were precious metals, <laughs> you know, like uh, silver, gold, bronze, things like that. Um, but he standardized their use, right? And he standardized the uh, the system of weights and measures and that was kind of an important point as well right so each coin had to be the same weight and measure you know to be standardized as well as just the standardized weight and measures of you know agricultural things so like like exactly one barrel is this weight you know um and uh, also for architecture you know, like distances uh lengths and widths and things like that were all all made standardized um he also standardized written script uh, which is um, had a profound impact on the economy because you know we, this is 
how he was able to write down tax records, <laughs> which is uniquely not <laughs> libertarian at all. Um, but, you know, and, and also facilitate trading over long distances, because keep in mind, you know, each of these warring states were often speaking completely different, you know, uh, 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 languages, different dialects. So they couldn't really talk to each other. So by having the same common tongue, they were able to do facilitate a lot more trading. He even went down to the fact of like he standardized a uniform axle size for carts. So like the width of of a cart so that the roads that he built could be built standardized and easier to, you know, uh, maintain so that he can connect all the towns that were in his empire. Um, so he was he was doing a whole lot of standardization. And and as a result, I think the government also took on a like huge amount of public works projects. Um, so things like roads canals, uh, notably the Lingchu Canal, uh, which connects the Yangtze and Pearl River basins. Uh, and that one was super important. Um, but just generally speaking, canals and roads are, are, are great for trade, but they're also super efficient at moving soldiers from one area to the next. So you, know, you have a good system of roads. You know, I, I mean, think, look at Rome, you know, like the, there's a reason why they say all roads lead to Rome. Um, they connected their empire by road building, right? Um, Chin was no different. Uh, and Chin's uh, political uh, changes had, you know, a whole lot of economic impact. Some of them were really, really good, as I pointed out, um, but some of them weren't so much, right? So when he removed those aristocrats from before from their lands, he divided their lands and he gave it up to peasant farmers. And this was cool. This was cool them because rather than paying taxes to an aristocrat, they were paying taxes directly to the fe- to the federal government, basically the emperor. Um, and you see this like giant migration of peasants from all over uh, the the seven unified states moving to moving south. Basically, uh, they migrated to places where it was more fertile, uh, where it was warmer, where the climate was better for pr- producing rice rather than wheat. Um, but then you know clearly those areas got overcrowded, and they had to pick up some new techniques. So they had to pick up things like deep tilling which is like a long distance irrigation um, system. So they were building really, uh, um, really complicated canals. Uh, and <laughs> this one's kind of gross, but I guess it makes sense. It, they, they, they had a lot of fertilizing uh, that they had to do, in- including using human waste, which they called night soil uh, to fertilize their lands because they were just overusing the, the land there. Why do they call it? Do you know why they called it night soil? Because they were using human shit. You would fertilize the land with your poop only at night because you wouldn't want to do it in public. That's how maybe I would have thought about maybe. it. Maybe. I don't know. Ancient Chinese proverb. You're not supposed to think about it too hard. <laughs> um, don't think about these things. <laughs> but basically these efforts, uh, you know. Chinese political philosophy in one lesson. Don't think about these just things. Just don't think about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so these 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 um, peasants, you know, they 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 went down to the south to set up their own farms in these lands that were previously owned by these aristocrats, and they overdid it, uh, and eventually they weren't making enough money to pay the taxes to the government. Uh, so to make some extra money, people were picking up side gigs like you know, weaving and sewing. Um, so like on the one hand, they weren't subjects to the aristocrats anymore, which. In many ways, you know, those aristocrats were brutal and, you know, dickheads. But in the same way, the federal government is now bleeding them dry. <laughs> you know, so basically they were working really hard and keeping very little of their own money. Um, so very much not libertarian in that respect. Um, 
I mentioned writing before, and and I, I want to underscore that too because you know it's it's there just was so many different ways that people were communicating and and you know the the unified system of writing it becomes like a a template for you know what we're going to talk about in the future which is you know the um the the, the unification of of all of these disparate ethnic groups as chinese quote unquote you know um and that part is super important you can take it however you like um you know at the time many of the you know unique languages and and cultures were still observed but they were just using you know the the unified system of writing as a as a midpoint like a way to run the government and a way to do trade uh, but everyone still had their own thing today they've probably taken that and expanded on it in such a way where now you might be able to argue uh you know kind of a cultural genocide in that respect where people are forced to use the standard language uh over their own uh, that is up for debate and if you want to learn more about that you can listen to the last episode um like more stuff. So uh, Emperor Chin did a whole lot of construction projects. Uh, this one is, is uh, I mentioned a bunch already, things like roads and canals and stuff like that. But uh, also he um, began building the Great Wall of China. Uh, now, there was already a bunch of like existing walls and things like that that were dotted along you know, the northern section of the country. But he was really the guy that, that sat down and was like, I'm going to, you know, connect the dots of here and, and plug them all together. You know, um, and that was him. Great Wall of China. If you want to continue to look at this in a Machiavellian context, he said never to get too comfortable. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure he was paranoid. And I think one of one of Machiavelli's main points was that um, you're always going to be under threat of invasion. Like never, ever think that you're not you're going to be safe from someone else coming to conquer you. Oh, yeah. Um, so yeah. I can see how a paranoid guy like that wanted to build a big wall. I mean, and that's, there are plenty of yeah. people to be scared of at that time, like the people in the north, the nomads. Um, I guess those were the main people, right? The nomadic tribes from the north yeah, were the, like the, the Han, main the, threat. Yeah. The northern folks, the Mongols, things like that. Um, I mean, you bring up a good point, though, and I think it's this. I'll make a point later that I'm not sure necessarily that we should call it paranoia, because I think that it's possible that, you know, these ideas that he had were, in fact, totally warranted uh, and not paranoid. Um, But. I think this paranoia, you know, this this idea that you pointed out that Machiavelli says never to get too comfortable, is definitely how Chin kind of gains this this reputation as a tyrant. You know, he he was a skilled leader. He was a tyrant. If you you know, if you believe what was written about him you know, hundred years later, right? Um, I mean, he he did a lot of things that were kind of fucked up. You know, like he outlawed most forms of religion. You know, uh, just sheerly out of out of you know, pragmatism because he wanted people to be loyal and obedient only to the government and not to religion. And he ordered that books be burned. You know, he wanted history to, you know, basically start and end with him. Um, and, you know, he killed people who didn't comply, <laughs> you know. He also, um, I read that he introduced a law called the Doctrine of Mutual Responsibility in which families were registered in groups of eight for administrative purposes. But here's the thing. The families would be responsible for each other. 
therefore creating friction within the unit creating this like snitch culture so if someone did something wrong you would have to go tell on them Mm -hmm. or unless or you would be responsible the whole group of eight would be responsible for it right exactly Mm -hmm. so failure of a neighbor to question something suspicious could lead to shared punishment in the group Mm -hmm. this is very akin to what's practiced in north korea china soviet union right or what's practiced in the soviet union telling on thy neighbors right and even and even in new york city oh yeah you go out without a mask on you're getting snitched snitch culture man but he also had this weird obsession with like immortality right oh yeah totally like kind of like alexander the great like what from what i've read alexander the great had this like weird um obsession with immortality and i think they, they they're kind of akin to each other um i think they probably both had the same type of uh personality disorders per, per se 100%. or at least personality types yeah um which kind of leads them to believe and that they are they since they're such competent people they believe that they're they have they're they're omnipotent themselves right, like there they must be a type. way that they can stay stick around longer or forever yeah he was, he was totally obsessed with trying to live forever um and, and as you point out most of the most like authoritarian you know uh, uh leaders also are this way um i mean he had his best scientists working on you know trying to find an elixir of immortality uh, that would basically enable him never to die uh, one of those alchemists was a total shyster. I mean, they all really are because <laughs> alchemy's bullshit. Um, but this one in particular was a total shyster. This is a funny story, actually. Um, so this dude, I forget his name. Um, he he asked for, you know, in order to create the elixir of life, there was some like place in a far off land in like the mountains or something like that that had special, you know, properties and and that that's where you can go to like get the ingredients and the materials to make this like you know to make this uh elixir of life and so he asked for a shit ton of money and resources and notably virgin boys and girls to get the job done like he needed all of these things and you know it's almost a kind of a shame that emperor chin's you know obsession with immortality basically trumped his more pragmatic side because remember you know early on in his reign he would hire the best people who are the most qualified to do their job and he was very very pragmatic in that respect and even some of the fucked up things that he did was for a pragmatic reason right like like suppressing you know um like creating unity was was a good thing but he did it for a pragmatic reason of saying like you must all obey me and not you know your own regions and in this case I'm a, i was a little bit you know when i read about this i was a little bit upset i'm like yo dude you're forgetting about all this like pragmatism like is this why would you dump all of this money and resources and apparently virgin boys and girls to for some bullshit <laughs> you know like he he's he it's basically following a, a conspiracy theory a fa- falsehood here um but on his first attempt the the alchemist though he he went off to try and get this, the stuff that he, you know, because obviously you can't keep up the charade forever. So he went and tried to get some you know, elixir and he came back empty handed and he blamed it on a giant sea monster 
apparently a giant sea monster got in his way and it's like the snake ate it yeah it's the, the, exactly it's the, the snake the, fucking ate it you know the snake ate it um the the snake ate it re- refers to missing money in nigeria yeah and the politician said that the snake ate it <laughs> yeah but you know the difference between you know the government in nigeria and you know the chin dynasty was when when the snake ate it in this case then when the giant sea monster got in the way chin sent a battalion to the sea to straight up shoot the sea with thousands of arrows to kill the monster that was a thing that he did it's just like well i hope i hope that these uh these ancient historians are exaggerating this because it sounds pretty dumb it is pretty dumb and and this is where i struggle a little bit i'm not sure if like he's if this is like the truth or if this is you know that historian guy just kind of shitting on him a little bit. Um, but the second attempt for this alchemist to go get it, he just left. <laughs> like, he, he never came back. Uh, so he just ran off with all the money and presumably all the little boys and shit. He, so he was obviously asking for these children because he was... Because he was a pedophile. A, he was a pedophile, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. He might have escaped to Japan, by the way. There's some archaeological evidence of this. Like they found some Chin era coins in Japan, and there's like a like a shrine or something like that to this dude, to the um, alchemist or whatever. Um, interesting story, um, but like this is just like a little piece of his obsession, you know, Chin's obsession with immortality. And you know, I mean, he he truly thought that his family would rule China for thousands of years, that he would rule it for thousands of years. But you know, sadly for him. Uh, the empire collapsed only three years after he died. Um, and I want to talk about this a little bit more, but uh, Qin Shi Huang, he, he is super famous, especially super recently um, for this tomb that he built. He had 700,000 workers basically from the day that he started being the king to construct this giant tomb for himself for when he died. And this tomb was... I forget the exact specifications, but it's a fucking massive, giant, giant, giant pyramid that they buried with dirt. And uh, it features a huge army of 8,000 terracotta soldiers, horses, chariots, all of them decked out with weapons, like good bronze and iron weapons and chariots and all this shit. Thousands and thousands of these. And, and the funny thing is, is that none of them are templated. Every single one of them of these soldiers is different it looks different and have like a different you know face and like different clothes or like different armor and it also gave us a really unique insight as to like how um you know chin empire uh battle formations were formed so you see in the front there was like a bunch of uh hyper mobile uh infantrymen behind that was the heavy infantrymen behind that was uh cavalry and then behind them were the uh were the archers you know and vast information you know came out of that super interesting dig they're still discovering it now and there's this one chamber that they still haven't opened yet that is said to have a small scale model of the chin empire like on the floor and has rivers of liquid mercury (laughs) holy shit this looks awesome have you you googling it now I'm Googling it right now. It is incredible. Man. It is incredible. And and we just recently found this. Like, I think it was like, I forgot the exact year, but I remember like the last. It was in the 70s? Or no. Eight, no like probably the 80s, right? Earlier. Uh, later, I mean. Hold on. Let's find out. 
Terracotta Army found when? Should have. 74 is when they found it. And then in 2015 is when they penetrated the, um, the liquid mercury area. That is, this is probably the coolest ancient structure I have ever seen. And I think it was, it was fucking like, nobody knew about it. <laughs> like, so I forget the exact story of like, I think a farmer fell into like a hole. It's always like some random farmer that finds these things. I know. It's always just some guy like strolling. That's how they found that ancient cave and not ancient cave that cave in vietnam yeah. they recently found the world's largest cave in vietnam and they found it like in over the past 20 years mm -hmm. and it was just like some farmer some dude just, like, walking around into, yeah. just walking it's just like oops <laughs> whoa it's big in here yeah but it's nuts wow, this is incredible yeah it's 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 not a small feat but literally this is i don't know of like Ancient Egyptian pharaohs were super obsessed with the afterlife and like with immortality in the sense that you'd live on in, in the afterlife. And so they build these giant, you know, pyramids. But like, this has to be like, this is bigger. <laughs> you know, like this is like m more intricate in my opinion to have 8,000 terracotta soldiers and they're all fucking, none of it is a template. It's They're all different, you know? And they all have all of these weapons. Can you imagine 8,000 swords in the ancient world? Could have been using them in battle, but nope. He made them strictly for the purposes of putting them in the dirt. Jesus. Not... At least he didn't bury like an actual army in I there. think he did. Uh, I think he did kill oh. like a lot of people who made it, who were like involved in making it, and then he just stuck them in there. If I if I he just stuck him in yeah, there if, for I, if I remember reading this correctly, yeah, he well to keep it a secret. He didn't want anyone. Oh. He didn't want anyone to know where it was. Oh, I I got you. It's also like I, full of booby traps and shit too. So like, like they have like compound bows and like uh, crossbows that like shoot you on pressure plates. And also liquid fucking mercury, <laughs> like just flowing around. That shit is like toxic. You know, um, that would be awesome to be the like the indiana jones that gets to find that yeah who gets to find this and dodge all those booby traps and you know be involved in like some type of uh we all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own to follow trends track financial situations follow gains and losses check out the yahoo finance podcast every day we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. 
I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. drug smuggling operation or something yeah. like that because i feel like that would be involved in it like you'd find it because some gang like some, the triads are yeah, running the, the, a heroin exactly operation out of it. Den. yeah exactly yeah 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 but i mean look look so this 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 i think obsession with immortality is, is like part of like how chin goes nuts right he, he totally went nuts after a while and i want to make the argument you know because i want to give him a little bit of credit here that this paranoia that he developed over time, you know, I don't think you can totally blame him. Think about some of the things that he survived. So he, he survived early on, like the abandonment by his father as a child, which I didn't go into too much detail on this one, but basically his dad and Lubu Wei cut and ran and left his mom and, and him, you know, after a, after a battle and just left him there. And it wasn't until later that, that they were allowed to go back to the, the Chin Empire. Um, so he has these abandonment daddy issues, uh, and then he survived multiple coup attempts. One of them was by his brother really early on when he, when he consolidated power. And one of them was by his mother's lover and his mom did nothing to stop this, or at least that's what was written. Like she didn't really try and stop him very hard. And he, and I didn't talk about this at all, but he survived multiple assassination attempts, at least three of them. And one of them was by his childhood friend. So, you know, can you blame a, a dude for being a little bit paranoid when, you know, all of these people that are close to you are like trying to fuck you over? It makes yeah, sense. Uh, it makes sense why he, why he gravitated so hard to it, legalism, why he you know, wanted to rule with an iron fist, you know? It's, it's perfectly logical that someone like that would turn out to be an authoritarian brute. However, I guess it's not really fair to, when you go ahead and start judging people from the past right. with our own uh, modern type of morality, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know what you're doing. You're just running in circles because everyone back then was a, was a authoritarian asshole. You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it it could be that. I just want to give some context because I think you know, trying to humanize him a little bit. You know, he was seen as as a tyrant, and he was seen as very paranoid. And I think that there are some, at least, some evidence of why he might have been that way, right? But it it could also just literally be the mercury pills that he was taking to prolong his own like life to like. Ex- that's just yeah. silly. So, how did they find that out? Like, was it was just well documented that he was very into. Was well he was very into mercury. All of the, all of the alchemists that he employed, like later on in his life, were saying like, "Yo, mercury, this is the shit." I mean, mercury is kind of a crazy substance when you think about it. It's it's a metal. Uh, it it's melting temperature is room temperature, right? And it's like fancy looking, and it looks like crazy and shit. And they're like, "Oh, this is this is fucking weird," <laughs> you know. And it's like hard to get, you know, so it was rare at the time. And they're like, yeah, this is uh, this is good for you. So he was taking mercury pills like a fucking idiot. 
He was poisoning himself, basically. Yeah. Well, uh, I wonder if he was drinking alcohol. Drinking alcohol. I wonder if he was drinking as well. I mean, a lot of Alexander the Great had a, a raging alcohol problem. Yeah. Um, sort of the father. A lot of old leaders did. Yeah. I didn't really read anything about that, but I mean, I wouldn't put it past him. I mean, I think the mercury pills by by itself would probably make you go crazy. Yeah, that would probably kill you. Yeah, eventually. it would make you go crazy first, you know, because like he's low, basically microdosing mercury. <laughs> it's nuts. Um, but I think one thing that that can clearly mark the beginning of the end for him and also for his empire was that he stopped his practice of meritocracy hiring, and he started surrounding himself with yes men. And you know, I think that, you know this is this is you you can track this on a lot of different you know societies and one thing this carried on even past his death you know like they stopped doing meritocracy stuff when his son when he died and his son took the throne later uh he kept up this practice of only having yes men uh and took it to an extreme and this is probably why you know um why the entire Qin dynasty fell apart like less than three years after Qin died uh spoiler alert um, but there's this one story when Chin's uh, son, who was then the the emperor, uh, he had this advisor, and they did this special test where uh, he would invite in all of the other advisors, right? And then he would bring in a deer to the court, and he would point at it, and he would say, this is a horse. And any of the advisors who didn't call it a horse were killed. And this was known as the point to a deer and call it a horse experiment. <laughs> It's like China's ancient China's alternative facts, basically. It's like if you weren't telling the emperor what he wanted to hear, you're gonna die. You don't surround yourself with yes men and expect like a positive outcome. Like that's just not gonna that's not helpful. Um anyway, back to Chin. Uh so Chin Chin Shi Huang, he he died while he was traveling on a tour of eastern China um in two ten BC. He was just shy of fifty years old. He was forty nine when he died. Um, on this tour, uh, he was apparently looking for the elixir of life, of course. <laughs> Some sources say that he died by poisoning uh, after he drank what he thought was the elixir, which was probably just straight up mercury or some other random shit. And uh, fun fact, they kept his death a secret. Um, they kept his, uh, uh, his death a secret for two whole months while they brought his body back to the capital in uh, in the state of Chin. Uh, and they wanted to do this because they wanted to name one of his sons, you know, the point to a deer and call it a horse son, um, as the emperor over his other sons. And um, because they thought he was like easily manipulatable. He was, he totally was. Uh, one story says that um, they put his body in a uh, merchant caravan of dead fish to hide the smell of a decomposing corpse. Um, and another fun story. Uh, so he, Chin Shi Huang had, had a couple of sons. One of them was in the north. Um, and uh, basically the, the advisors forged a document uh, by the emperor telling the, one of the sons that was you know, basically exiled in the north to kill himself because the emperor said so, and he did. And that's how they were able to get this other dude, Hu Hai, uh, which was the, the son that, that took over afterwards. Uh, also, uh, the new king, uh, Hu Hai, 
Uh, he, he was only in power for three years. This is the point to a deer and call it a horse guy. Um, and he was also famous for killing people who brought him bad news. Uh, and this is the origin of the saying, don't, don't shoot the messenger or don't kill the messenger. Um, he was just a dick. And uh, yeah, that, that's, that's what happened. It, it just unraveled after a while, after a while. Yeah, those Machiavellian dictatorships, they may last for a little bit to to um, enrich or to uh, empower, you know, the guy who's sitting on top. But as soon as that person goes, usually the thing falls apart, crumbles like a stack of cards. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was already showing signs of, you know, pressure cracks, you know, like fracturing. Emperor Chin, towards the end of his reign, was not well, and he was not... He just wasn't doing what he was good at anymore, you know? And and, and I guess at this point, I kind of want to talk kind of more broadly, because as, as I've been learning about Emperor Chin and uh, more, more broadly about, like, the comeuppance of China in general, and think of it in the context of modern-day China, I think, you know... We can use Qin's empire, at least the founding of Qin's empire, and maybe even legalism, broadly speaking, as kind of a template for modern day China. I mean, think about this. Let's let's have a little bit of a chat about this. You know, he's uh, there's a strong focus on selective education in the Qin empire. There's a strong focus on selective education in the current CCP. Um, there was a strong focus on hiring the best and brightest, even stealing the best and brightest from all over the world or the known world at the time. Um, and today, the exact same thing happens. Either they get the best people or they just straight up steal from the best people. Um, consolidation of power, right? So breaking up regions and counties and autonomous zones so that they lose you know, regional or you know, local uh, affiliation and you know, consolidate under a, this is the next point, maintaining like a national identity over a regional identity. Happened in the Qin dynasty, happening now in the CCP. And then there's this idea, like this legalist idea, or even a Machiavellian idea, like this premise of full control of the state, which is obviously clear uh, in the CCP. I mean, what do you think? Like now that now you've like learned a little bit more about the the foundation here and especially the chin empire do you see those parallels yeah i do see the parallels of legalism to the cpcp and it makes it makes a lot of sense when you think about it what's interesting is that i know in the beginning stage the beginning stages of of uh, chinese communism the early Chinese communists, they rejected a lot of these ancient philosophies. Mm-hmm. So they rejected Confucianism and they rejected legalism. Right. The main reason being is because these um, philosophies, systems, religions, whatever you want to call them, they created hierarchies. And mm-hmm. Mao's China... And Mao, I believe, was a student and was probably more well read in in uh, the study of legalism and Confucianism um, than he was actually Marxism. He he was more obsessed with creating an ideology that was pure, 
that was pure to Marxist roots. And but that was distinct Chinese, though. That was kind that, of important part. Yeah, with these ancient philosophies like legalism and Confucianism, um, these could be. Um, I think the the critique of of communists would be that they are bendable, so they're they're bendable to fit the needs of whoever's in power or who's ever trying to use them. They're more tools rather than pure philosophies i feel mm. and i you know I'm, I'm no expert on these subjects but just that was just has been my impression and my thought about reading about legalism and confucianism that confucianism sorry that these are more so tools and principles to govern rather than like philosophies but i guess that's what a philosophy is but I think the the critique from um, Marxists and communists is that they're um, they can fit who the, the ruler's desire and how to bend them. Now, I think that Xi Jinping is an entirely different animal. I don't really think there's too much communist about the current, at least economic system that they have going on in China, and Xi Jinping is allegedly very fond of these Chinese classics. Um, since the 1980s, a lot of these ideas, these ancient ideas have begun to revive in today's modern CCP. And they've been trying to implement elements of Confucianism and legalism into Marxism, which is their official ideology. Right. And by tapping into these uh, cultural philosophical roots the ccp is able to legitimize itself by formulating ideologies that are are separate from western liberalism right so it's uniquely china like you said mm -hmm. and it's not something that's adapted for, adopted from europe or america um i think they're trying to spin their current government as something that is not um that is not like it's not marxist you know, right it's chinese it's it's, yeah, exactly. It's it's Chinese, and I think that's what they're more concerned about. Um, I'd have to ask an expert why there's still posters of Mao on people's walls in China. Habit. But I think it's of habit and just yeah. of in tradition, because I, I don't think anyone thought that he was a good leader in the 1980s when <laughs> no. they ditched all of the economic practices that under Mao in favor of um, capitalism, but capitalism as a, as a, not in the spirit of freedom, capitalism purely to rich, enrich the state. Mm -hmm. Like that is Chinese, the Chinese economics. It's, it's, not because it's morally right to let people pick and choose, you know, what they want to, what voluntary interactions they want to have with each other. More so that this is the best way to to make China a powerhouse um, on the world stage. Right. So yeah, I think I see a huge um, core. I see a huge correlation between legalism um, and Confucianism in the CCP. And I think as we just continue to discuss uh, modern Chinese politics, I think those 
analogies will become even more clear. But that's something I'm I'm interested in exploring in the future because I I'm no expert on this. Like I kind of a noob when it comes to China. Same here, so, but it's fun to learn. Yeah. It is fun to learn. Well, you know, um, I think, you know, I can go on and on about how I believe that there are some parallels. I think you kind of hit it on the head when you said that current President Xi is, is kind of enamored with these ancient Chinese classics. And and I'd venture to say that he might consider himself a bit of a, uh, you know, Shi Huang or, you know, emperor himself uh, in the respect that he kind of follows along you know, a lot of the footsteps of, of Jin, and I pointed out a bunch of them before, but as you were talking, I thought of more, you know, great works, you know, uh, building, you know, the, the canals and roads and bridges and, uh, and things like that, 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 um, that Qin Shi Huang did. And now we look at that parallels in, in terms of like the extreme development that, that, uh, President Xi is, is pushing specifically around say the one, uh, belt road initiative. Uh, to basically remake the uh, like a modern day Silk Road, and that's not that's not a small undertaking, right? And Qin Shi Huang's you know uh, uh, mo throughout his outside of conquering and and unifying China was great works, right? Like making big fucking projects and putting everybody to work to do specific things. And under Qin Shi Huang, if you were appointed to you know build a road, you built a road, and if you didn't, you died. Um, you kind of see some parallels there, you know. Like if if President Xi wants you to pick cotton in Xinjiang, and you're a Uyghur, you had better pick the fucking cotton, or he, or he you're getting sent to a camp. That's just the way it is, you know. Uh, so it's like it's like this weird dichotomy between this pseudo positive thing, right? Like development of China is very positive. For the Chinese people, right? Developing their economy is very positive. It's very positive for the global economy that they do well, right? We all do well when they do well. But at the same time, it's on the backs and with this like kind of darker underpinning, right? And it's very Qin Shi Huang. It's very reminiscent, in my opinion. Just the way that it, that that these things get done, it's both expansion, unification, growth, modernization. The Emperor Qin way. <laughs> and and uh, I th- I keep on saying this, but I I still believe in this theory. China is going through the process of creating their nation state, but they're doing it with a blunt object in broad daylight. Yep. I think um, that's what um, Emperor Qin was doing, right? When he was creating the the first unified China, right. essentially. And but there wasn't TV back exactly, then. There wasn't the internet back then. So yeah, there wasn't the T. There wasn't the TV or internet back then, um, and that's what the uh, current, um, the current form of the CCP is doing right now. They're building a nation state with a blunt hammer or a blunt object in broad daylight, and uh, we're seeing all the ugly things that go along with that, and. You know, it's everything that's happening with Uyghurs and how they treat minorities. Yes, it's horrifying, but it's exactly what you would expect to happen, given the context of the CCP and how you think that they would approach 
Muslim minorities <laughs> yeah. who have who run who counter to their, issues, to their um, who are having issues assimilating right. into the broader Han culture. Right. It's exactly what you would expect. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I think in some cases you would expect worse treatment. Like, yeah, but um, it's a uh, it's an interesting it's an interesting subject. All right. Maybe we can cut it off um, a little bit early. All right. So we are an hour and 20 minutes in to recording this episode. Uh, thank you guys, everyone, for, for joining us for another episode of Bro History. Really do enjoy your continued uh, attention and support. Um, if you want to support the show, rate and review the podcast. Um, that is the number one way to help us grow this show. It's just rate and review. If you're on Apple, just pull up the five star, press the five, then rate and review it. That is an awesome help. And you can also join us on Patreon to get access to our Slack and additional content. Um, I wanted to, um, before we end this show, um, I, I wanted to uh, uh, quickly talk about something um, in my uh personal life that I don't normally like to do on the show or at least too much. But, um, I I wanted to just mention that my, my uncle recently had a, um, open heart surgery that went wrong. And he, during, he has had a heart disease for a really long time since he was a boy. He had a pacemaker put in to his body when he was 30 years old. He went into a procedure having the leads to have the leads in his pacemaker replaced. During the procedure, um, things went really wrong. He ended up miraculously surviving the surgery. However, he lost oxygen in his brain, um, enough oxygen to receive um, a significant amount of brain damage. And uh, right now, my, uh, my aunt and my two cousins it's really taken an enormous toll on them to, uh, to deal with this. Um, he has two daughters and, um, and, uh, you know, my aunt is like one of the sweetest people in the world. So we have a GoFundMe right now to, uh, help them just, uh, really just bear kind of the financial and and really the emotional toll that is, uh, that is going to be involved in the recovery process for my uncle. So if you want to support it, um, it would be really greatly appreciated. I'm going to put the GoFundMe link um, in the show notes. And um, yeah, if, if you want to support that, that would be awesome. Really would appreciate it. For sure. All right. Um, all right. Let's end this thing. Thanks again for listening to another episode. Really do appreciate your attention and uh, we will see you next week. Peace. Spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and more time actually watching and playing what you want with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. 
All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts.